I want to welcome you to the, to my knowledge, this is the first ever outdoor baptism service of Severn Covenant Church. As of this moment, we have, I don't know if you heard, 20 people getting baptized in just a few minutes here. Uh, that's 20 people going public with their faith in Jesus. And if you're not familiar, uh, baptism at its core, it's simply a, it's a physical demonstration of the fact that your whole life has been transformed by Jesus. And so what I wanted to do today is speak briefly, and I mean briefly, because I feel like I might pass out up here, from a passage that's right along with that. I couldn't think of a better passage than the one I'm about to read to you. I'm in 1 Corinthians, Lord Jesus, give me that cloud cover. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Uh, I'll read it, pull a few things out of it, and then we'll get your friends or, or family or loved ones or whoever it is in the tank, and we'll celebrate with them. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaimed to you, unless you believed for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This is God's word. 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters in it, and it covers about every topic imaginable. And the reason for that is because the church it was written to had about every problem imaginable. And what we're reading here at the beginning of of chapter 15 is basically Paul beginning to wrap up and conclude the whole letter. And what he's saying here is, I want to make sure to clarify the gospel to you because it is the most important thing. This is basically Paul's way of saying, listen, if you don't remember anything else that we talked about in this letter, fine. But before I go, I need to make sure that you understand the gospel clearly because if you can take hold of it and allow it to take hold of you, no matter what happens in your life, you're going to be okay. So the, the, the first and most pressing question that raises for me is if Paul thought this thing called the gospel was that important, what exactly is it? The word gospel, you may have heard this before, simply means good news. And in Paul's day, a gospel was an announcement of a history-altering event that has the power to change your life. And the gospel that Paul is talking about here, the gospel that you hear Christians talk about all the time is probably nowhere spelled out more clearly in the entire Bible than it is right here. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised again three days later. That message is the central message of Christianity. It's the message that Paul thought was so important he made sure to make it clear before concluding this letter known as 1 Corinthians And it is the message that has transformed the lives of the 20 people coming forward in baptism today. So what I want to do in the short amount of time we have is just speak to three questions. I want to speak to first and foremost, 
who the gospel is for, secondly, what the gospel gives, and then lastly, what the gospel and only the gospel can take away. First and foremost, who is the gospel for? You may have noticed this, but right after Paul talks about the resurrection, he fires off this list of all of these people that Jesus appeared to personally. And on the one hand, what Paul is doing is providing evidence for the resurrection. He's basically saying, if you find it hard to believe that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God, Paul would say, I don't blame you, so don't take my word for it. Go ahead and talk to the eyewitnesses because there are hundreds of people that will all tell you they saw the same thing with their own two eyes. So on the one hand, Paul is defending the truth of the resurrection. But when you look at the three names that Paul specifically names in this list here of people Jesus appeared to, I think something deeper is being communicated. The three people that Paul specifically names in this list is first a man named Cephas or Peter, and then you have James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, and then lastly, he names himself. And when you look at the profile of these three people, you realize they could not have been a whole lot more different than they were. First and foremost, Peter, as you may have known, is, is a, he was a blue-collar worker. He was, a, he was a fisherman who was himself a disciple of Jesus during his three-year ministry until he famously denied even knowing who Jesus was just hours before the crucifixion. And so the last interaction that Peter had with Jesus, his rabbi, before Jesus died was Peter denying even knowing who Jesus was. Then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who despite the fact that he saw all of these other people follow and fawn over his half-brother Jesus, James never once believed the claims that his half-brother Jesus made during his ministry. He doubted. He was skeptical. And then Paul, on the other hand, was a, he was a white-collar, uh, highly educated, culturally elite religious Pharisee that was so offended by the message of Christianity that he famously persecuted Christians before he became one himself. And because these three people were coming from such different places, they had... They had profoundly different needs when Jesus met them, profoundly different obstacles that were keeping them out of a, a life-changing relationship with God. For Peter, what was primarily keeping him from God was his own shame. For, for Peter, it was, it was the fact that he was crushed under the weight of guilt and regret and feeling like a failure over the fact that he denied even knowing who Jesus was. And so knowing that when Jesus met him after the resurrection, he did exactly what Peter needed him to do for him. He picked him up. Paul, on the other hand, was coming from a completely different place. Paul's biggest issue was not his shame, it was his own pride. He was a deeply self-righteous individual. He was arrogant. He was condescending. He was cruel. He used religion as an excuse to leverage violence against people that disagreed with him, as so many people throughout human history have. And so when Jesus met with Paul, he didn't pick him up like he did with Peter. He knocked him down, quite famously, literally knocked him down. You can read about his conversion experience in Acts chapter 9. But James was really unique from either of them. For James, the half-brother of Jesus, the primary obstacle keeping him from faith, it wasn't his shame. You know, he wasn't really crumbling under the, under the weight of shame over things that he'd done or the life that he lived. It also wasn't his pride. He wasn't like Paul. He wasn't so arrogant to think that he had a monopoly on the truth and he could persecute people that disagreed with him. It was nothing like that. It wasn't his shame or his pride. It was actually his doubt. 
James was a man that you could say quite literally was raised around Christianity. He's literally the half-brother of the founder of Christianity. And so he was raised around that his entire life, but James didn't buy it. He doubted. He was skeptical. Meaning it it didn't matter for James that, that grown men walked away from everything they knew to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It didn't matter to James that he saw entire towns empty and hang on every word that his half-brother said. It didn't matter that Jesus had performed these miracles. What, what we know about James, based on what we see in the gospel accounts, is that he was not the type to be swept up in emotion and to believe something simply because other people believed it, which maybe describes some of you all here today. James was the kind of individual that needed to know that he didn't have to check his intellect at the door in, in order to follow Jesus. He needed to know that there were good reasons to believe the truth claims of Jesus, which again, that's precisely what Jesus gave James when he met James in his resurrected body. For James, the resurrection of Jesus, when he saw it with his own two eyes, that that answered all of his questions and that brought him into the faith. It's the day, it's the moment that he became a follower of Jesus. And these three men named in this list Peter, James, and Paul collectively went on to write uh, more than half of what we now refer to as our New Testament. And so I say everything that I've said to simply make this point. When you ask the question, who is the gospel for? The answer is the gospel's for everybody. You can't say that Christianity works for some people, but it doesn't work for others as though there is a Christian type because there's no such thing as a Christian type. The gospel is not for conservative types or liberal types. It's not for the blue collar or the white collar. It's not for people who are more emotional or people who are more rational. It's not for people that have made a mess of their lives and had a rock bottom experience or people that have lived pretty easy, squeaky clean, squeaky clean lives. It's for everybody. It, it has come to everyone. It has ministered to everyone and it can change anyone. And as I, as I was putting this teaching together, it dawned on me that the group of people getting baptized in just a few minutes here that you're gonna bear witness to are literally the physical embodiment of what I'm trying to explain right now. On Tuesday, we had a staff meeting. We passed around a a sheet of paper that, that listed by name every single person getting baptized today. And when I read down that list, it dawned on me, the only thing that the people getting baptized today have in common is Jesus, period. They're, they're about as, as different as they can be in every other way. Some of them were raised in the faith and then one day what they'd heard their whole life finally became real to them. Some of them, some of them didn't even start getting interested in a relationship with God until they were an adult. Some of them needed to have a deeply emotional encounter to bring them into the faith. For some of them, it, it wasn't an emotional thing. They just needed to have their questions answered. They needed to be intellectually satisfied. They come from different from ages, from different stages of life, different marital statuses, even different uh, um, cultures and backgrounds and socioeconomic classes. But what they all have in common is that Jesus met them where they are and he gave them what they need because that, ladies and gentlemen, is what Jesus does. So first and foremost, who's the gospel for? The gospel is for literally anybody and everybody. Second question I wanna speak to today, and this one will be shorter, is if the gospel's for everyone, then what does the gospel actually give? And I can't think of a better answer to that question than what Paul himself wrote about his own life in verse nine. Paul said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. When Paul wrote the words, I persecuted the church of God, that's just, a, that's just a phrase for us that we mouse past and keep on moving. For Paul, 
what he just did was openly admit and put into writing in a book that has now been preserved for the last 2,000 years, that's Paul allowing you a behind-the-scenes look into what was the most shameful chapter of his life, which is that he killed a lot of Christians before he became one himself. And I don't know if you've ever considered this, but remember, Paul became a Christian when Christianity was still relatively new, meaning there weren't that many Christians in the world at the time that Paul converted to Christianity. That means we can be reasonably certain that every town that Paul entered into, he was faced with people whose loved ones he had killed. The question that raises for me is how was Paul able to live with that? How was Paul able to live with himself? You know, I don't want to get too personal here because I know this is supposed to be kind of an upper of a service, but in a group this size, I'm willing to bet there's a good chance that there's a number of people listening to me right now and you have a lot of trouble living with things that you've done that are considerably smaller than what Paul learned to live with that he had done. And the reason for that, the reason that we still struggle with so much guilt and so much regret and so much shame and so much self-hatred is because we fail to understand what Paul understood. And what he understood is recorded in literally the next verse of scripture for us. One of the most encouraging statements in the entire New Testament for me, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse, verse 10, but by God's grace, I am what I am. Paul understood that the moment you give your life to Jesus, and this is so close to the essence of what Christianity is about, that the moment you give your life to Jesus, in that very moment, you are not defined by anything that you have done or failed to do. You are defined by what Jesus Christ has done for you. That means that when you give your life to Jesus, it no, matter, it, it no longer matters what other people think about you, and it doesn't even matter what you think about yourself. The only thing that matters is when your heavenly Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. And when that came home for Paul, when Paul made that the operative principle in his life and took that into the core of his being, that gave him the ability to do something that maybe a lot of us still, still struggle with doing. What the gospel did for Paul is it gave him the ability to face himself, to look himself in the eye without being crushed by what he saw. And so when you ask the question, well, what does the gospel give us? What the gospel gives us is a new identity that allows us to finally get honest with ourselves. It allows us to get honest about how far we fall short. It allows us to get honest about our shortcomings, our failings, our failures, the people that we've hurt, that we need to make amends with, that we need to go to and make things right with. And it allows us to do all of that without feeling like we're dying inside because our value and our worth does not depend on what we do or how we live. It depends on how Jesus Christ lived for us. That means every single person who gives their life to Jesus is able to say along with Paul, I might not be what I want to be, and I'm certainly not always what I should be, but by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. That's what the gospel gives you. Thirdly and lastly, we're almost done here. What does the gospel take away from us? And the answer to that question is all the way at the end of this chapter in verses 55 through 57, which says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What those verses represent is Paul 
openly mocking the thing that you and I should be most afraid of, which is death itself. And the only reason Paul could do this is because he understood that when you give your life to Jesus, the Savior who died that you might live, death loses the power that it would otherwise have over you. So ladies and gentlemen, we've arrived at the end of our time this afternoon. I want to call the worship team up. If you're getting baptized today, you can go ahead and line up over here on my right with Mark Ledbetter, our our baptism line host. And for the rest of you in attendance today, you're not getting baptized, but you're spectating. I just wanted to, to invite you. We like to make a really big deal of baptism here because baptism is a really big deal. So if you can hear me right now, I would ask you to stand And as these people come forward to be baptized, please feel free to press forward to the front so that you can see their cardboard testimonies and celebrate with them when they come up out of the water. And while everybody's doing that, you all can go ahead and stand now, by the way. While everybody's getting into place, I want to leave you today with a story I came across several years ago that means a lot to me and it perfectly encapsulates what Paul's trying to get us to understand here. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the early 1900s. And while he was serving that church, his wife, who was only in her late 30s, died of cancer. Not only did she leave Donald behind, but she left behind four children who were under the age of 12. It was an unbelievable tragedy. And when Donald was driving to the funeral of his wife with all four children in the car, This huge truck passed them on the left-hand side, and what it did, it cast its shadow over their vehicle, and a thought occurred to Donald. And so he asked his children, he said, would you rather be hit by the shadow of that truck or by the truck itself? And his oldest son answered back and said, the shadow, obviously. And Barnhouse answered, and he said, this means so much to me, especially in light of what Paul says here. Barnhouse answered back and he said, well, that's what happened to your mom. And that's the only thing that happened to your mom. It was just the shadow of death that passed over her because death itself ran over Jesus. And the reason that he could have that kind of hope in the face of that kind of tragedy, the only reason he could have that kind of hope is because he understood exactly what Paul is trying to get us to understand here, what he was trying to get the Corinthians to understand 2,000 years ago before he closed this letter down, which is that when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus Christ will give you all kinds of things. He will blow your mind with the love and the joy and the peace that surpasses all understanding and the contentment. He will give you all kinds of things that would surprise you the day that you start walking with him. But make no mistake, make no mistake, the one thing that Jesus Christ will absolutely take from you when you give your life to him, something that only Jesus Christ can take from you, is this thing called the sting of death. And that is exactly what we celebrate today in baptism. That 20 people are coming forward, publicly professing their commitment to Jesus, which means that everything that we've talked about today is true of them. These are 20 people that have understood that the gospel is for people like them, 20 people that understand by God's grace they are who they are, 20 people that understand that death no longer has any sting for them because their Savior has taken it away. And so I want to encourage all of you that have come here today, thank you for being here, especially if you don't normally attend this church. It means so much to me that you'd stand out in the heat with us. But while these people come forward, they're going to stand right here on this stoop, 
and they're gonna, they're gonna show you what we call a cardboard testimony. On one side of it, they're gonna tell you what their life was like before Jesus. They're gonna spin it around and tell you how Jesus has transformed their life. And then they're gonna step down from here, hop in that tank and get baptized. And I just, want, I just would ask you, please celebrate with them. Show them how much you love them, how much you care about them, how much you support them. Because today, church, we have something worth celebrating. Let's get to it. That's it. That's all.